If you are enjoying this podcast, why not try Baker Street 2033 by the same author, a metaphysical mystery involving Sherlock Holmes, virtual reality, and fictional objects. Available on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon Music. I landed on a beautiful summer's day in June. The rain was whipping the nation like a Jesuit mortifying his flesh. Like I said, just beautiful. I took the train up from London. The placid air of English civilization was suffocating. It was like being stuck inside a cucumber sandwich. I kept getting asked if I wanted a nice cup of tea. Cambridge was everything my guidebook said it would be. Quaint. Trees, fields, a river, even cattle all mingled with a polite English colloquialism that kept mistaking itself for urbanity and calling itself a city. I kept tripping over bicycles and college buildings older than America. Trinity College looked like a badly mixed architecture cocktail. Two parts castle, one part church. But what did I know? What went on inside those ornate walls seemed to work. The list of alumni read like the product line of a genius factory. Isaac Newton, Lord Byron, Alfred Tennyson, and now this guy, Godwit. Over the massive gate stood a statue of that majestic fat man, Henry VIII, brandishing a chair leg instead of a scepter. It made me smile. Behind the imposing gate was my tail. If I was going to get past the porters, I'd have to pose as some kind of egghead. I'd read plenty of stories in the eyes of dead men on the lips of dames, but that kind of learning was no use here. So I just hung about like a fly on a corpse, using the awning of a nearby shop to fend off the rain and keeping my peepers alert for the tale. church bell was just ringing out on my third damp hour when I spotted him. He was short, five five, five six, and dapper looking. He wore a suit and tie and shoes so shiny you could shave in them. He was the kind of rich that looks the part. His eyes shone with curiosity like a pair of black marbles. There was no real warmth to them. Intellectual eyes bent inwards. No wonder he never spotted me as I followed him. He ducked into a little Italian cafe called Sraffa's. I followed him inside. He sat down at a table in front of the window. I sat two tables back from him. He spent a lot of time staring into space, a lot of time scribbling something on a paper napkin. A guy behind the counter eyed him with suspicion as he did so. He was a tall, thin man, swarthy looking. He was balancing a slug on his top lip, and over his dark eyes hung a pair of beetling brows. Throw in the waspish scowl, and the guy was a regular entomologist. I took it this was the Goomba who owned the joint. 
When the waitress came over, Godwit ordered espresso without looking up at her. He took his coffee without sugar. The guy had that kind of class. When he was done drinking and scribbling, he stood up and went over to the counter. You again, said the Goomba. What do you want now? He was a real charmer. I need to talk to you about this. Godwit showed him whatever it was he'd scribbled on the napkin. Signor Beetlebrows was having none of it. A gesture followed, a flick of the fingertips brushing the underside of his chin outwards towards the philosopher grammarian. Whatever it meant, it seemed to ruffle Godwit. He tried another tack. I'll talk about anything, he said. There was real desperation in his voice. Yeah, but in your way, was all the Goomba had to say before retreating behind the clatter of porcelain. Godwit seemed to feel it like a suck in the guts from a gorilla. He just stood there sort of stunned a while. The sound of the door opening brought him back from his reverie. I watched as he placed a bill down on the counter, so crisp it looked as if it had been steam-pressed. His face was not taut with rage, but slack with disappointment. He scrunched the napkin into a ball and dropped it absentmindedly on the table he'd been sat at on the way out. I got up and left the king's head smiling up at the ceiling. As I passed the table where my tail had been sitting, I swiped the crushed napkin, concealing it up my sleeve and made for the door. Godwit hadn't gone far. He was outside on the cobblestones making the tailing awkward, so I turned to look in a shop window. Dame's frillies. Typical. I did my best to look somehow interested and indifferent towards the black lace D-cups and used the reflection in the glass to keep an eye on Godwit. A melody suddenly leapt off his lips. It had a yearning quality, like a question reaching out for an answer. Perhaps it was this very gesture that made the man in the mustard suit and flat cap on the other side of the street turn his way. Excuse me, sir. Could I trouble you for a moment? The guy looked like a cherub on stilts, rosy-cheeked, baby-faced, about six foot tall. The mustard threads did him no favours, but Godwood gave him the time of day anyway. Well... I've got this uh, interview with a chap called the Tobacconist, see, and I'll be hanged if I know where to find him. His disciples are legion. Ask one of them. He turned to carry on his way. Actually, I thought I was. He might as well have pulled a gun on him for how it stopped him in his tracks. He turned back round. So, you know how to crack vise, kid. And there I was, thinking he was just out of shots. Crack wise? I'm sorry, I don't quite get your meaning. Now he was giving it the Mr. Innocent routine. Bertie looking for a new scribe, is he? A new accountant, actually. Ah, so you're a numbers guy, eh? He didn't trust numbers guys. Something like that. You couldn't tell me where to find him, could you? He eyed Mr. Mustard with suspicion. Please... English Mustard was tripping over himself with politeness. A real limey charmer. Head back up, Trinity Road, duck under Henry's fat quiche, then left into Neville's court, then followed the sound of braying donkeys. The kid just stood there looking gangly and lost. I'll tell you what I'll do, kiddle. I'll walk you there myself, but it'll cost you. How much? More than you know, he said, a curious smile dancing on his lips. The kid's cheeks went pinker than the frillies I was gawking at. Spiffing, he sputtered out. After you. Off they went with me trailing unnoticed in their wake.
Endnotes. In this second section, which surely merits the name Chapter, given its sequential fit, Wittgenstein reworks a notorious dispute with his old philosophical sparring partner, the Italian economist Piero Sraffa. Norman Malcolm's memoirs reveal the contemptuous Neapolitan gesture Sraffa is supposed to have given Wittgenstein, brushing his fingertips under his chin towards his interlocutor, demanding of him, what is the logical form of that? Fuck off, perhaps. Sraffa must have been pretty irked with him because he ended their regular discussions despite the philosopher's pleadings. In spite of this, the Austrian later paid homage to the Italian economist in the introduction to philosophical investigations. There is undoubtedly a magnanimity in Wittgenstein acknowledging his indebtedness to Sraffa years later for his stimulus, his extraordinary generosity going so far as to thank him for the most consequential ideas in the book. Parenthetically, there was a minor brouhaha about Sraffa's Neapolitan gesture in the letter section of the TLS lasting several weeks a few years back. It could be argued that it was precisely this sort of pedantry that compelled Wittgenstein to complain of the stifling English civilization and to leave Cambridge in 1948, which had become hateful to him. In a letter, he complains of the stiffness, the artificiality, the self-satisfaction of the people. One gets a sense of the stifling, claustrophobic milieu in his image of being stuck inside a cucumber sandwich, a metaphor at once humorous and culturally barbed. The Austrian has a reputation for being the literateur's philosopher, and one can certainly see a study in the poetics of Wittgenstein becoming some academic's golden goose before too long, if it hasn't already. English mustard is David Pinson, Wittgenstein's first platonic lover. A brilliant mathematics scholar and talented pianist, qualities which brought the two men together. Pinson accompanied the philosopher on trips to Iceland and Norway at Wittgenstein's expense. What becomes apparent in this chapter is that the philosopher is mining his own life for material in a rather transparent way. Here the dividends of using a proxy narrator become clear, allowing the author a quasi-objectivity on his actions and motives therein. He shadows his younger self as he drifts around the Cambridge of his youth, mapping former haunts, encountering old companions, creating a cartography of choices in the process. He turns to the past like a detective would a cold case, poring over it for clues as to how his present came to be the way it is. Where did all his philosophical inquiry get him? Is there a solution to this question, or is it meaningless to even ask? It is an investigation that requires a new mode of inquiry, a philosophy of detection. Wittgenstein is taking the noir genre deeper into the existential territory it already occupies. The narrative risks are considerable, as is the psychological toll such imaginative endeavours must take on their author. Dear Old Blood, Notes on a Wittgenstein Noir will return in episode 3. The place was swarming with young punks.
If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might like to consider others by the same writer and producer, such as Baker Street 2033 and Modern Gothic. All are available from the usual podcast outlets. You could also consider supporting the writer at buymeacoffee.com slash Neil Fitzgerald. <laughs>